0: encouraging. God has definitely blessed us uh, with just great leadership in in worship. And when I'd planned on doing the series that were in, Amazing Grace, uh, the guys were great to cooperate with some of those songs along the way. So a great, great introduction to the message this morning. Uh, Last week, we started a short series, three weeks, only three weeks, um, here in August on the theme, Amazing Grace. And the introduction for that was the conversion story of John Newton. You know, he's the author of the well-known English hymn, Amazing Grace, and we talked a little bit about God's amazing grace in His conversion, in His redemption and salvation, and then looked at what Scripture said about our amazing grace experience of God in our redemption as well. Let me hit a couple of the highlights from that, and by the way, if any of this sounds amiss to you here on this short introduction where I'm not qualifying a bunch of things... Uh, Please go listen to last week's message. So in humanity's fall, this recapping last week, in the Garden of Eden, we went from very good before perfect and holy God to nothing good, Romans 7. Though still bearing God's image, the fall wrecked us so thoroughly that we don't seek God and can't please Him. In grace, God breathes new life into dead people. And Jesus, the good shepherd, seeks those who aren't seeking him. And so we say, we look back on Newton's or our own or anyone's um, being brought back to Christ, we say it's truly amazing. This morning's message is about the continuation of that amazing grace in the life of every believer. Uh, and I'll, I'll share a, a concern on the front end. The, the points that I'm actually speaking to this morning will only get about the last 15 minutes. And it's because I'm working hard to qualify what I'm saying. And it's with this concern I think it's possible for many of us, if not most of us, to look back on our conversion and we see God's amazing grace. And I heard from a lot of you last week that that was helpful that it it highlights that, and you have this sense of relief. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. My concern, frankly, is that many of us, many in the church by and large, feel like, think like, act like God's grace ended at conversion in the sense that he doesn't have grace provisions for us right now that he means for us to be aware of and to be taking advantage of, to be participating in, because this series is past, present, and future. So we look back on our conversion, we say, man, I see the grace of God. But guys, this is the thing. Right now, scripture says, we'll read all this, we are children of God. We're children of God, that's what we are right now. And God is raising us as a faithful parent, as his children. And so he has this incredibly important work. He's very focused on this in your life and mine. If you've trusted Christ for salvation, this is what he's about. He's raising us up to be like Christ. That's what he's doing right now. We are children of God. My my dilemma is that I just feel like so many of us write off, minimize, God's grace work right now related to our status as his children that he's conforming to the image of Christ so that's where we're going but we're going to qualify that a few different ways because this is the thing if I set a feast for you at my house and you came and you weren't hungry the feast wouldn't have much value you'd say man it looks it's okay it's nice it looks good take a picture but, but I'm not hungry, I can't enjoy it. If we don't have a hunger for what God is providing for us in the time right now, while we are children in this time, our life on earth, then it's as if he set the table and we just say, we're not hungry. Because we don't see the need of it, we don't feel the hunger and the thirst for what God is up to. So that's where we're going this morning. So Romans 8, and again, I'll, I'll be all over the place if you have your Bible, feel free to follow along, we'll be in a lot of different texts this morning. Starting at Romans eight, twenty-eight and 29, uh, Paul wrote, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So God's working all things together for good, friends, not just a general good, for a specific good. For those who are called according to his purpose, he has a purpose and a plan for your life. And I don't just mean the specific things that are true for you individually where you live and work and breathe, all that. I mean generically for all of us. His purpose. For, here it is, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to, God predestined us to what? He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. So we say today we are children of God, and God's great work in us today is to make us like Christ. God can use us in all sorts of ways, and we say uh, God's uh, saving the lost today, absolutely. God's doing a number of things today. But as his children, you as God's child, what is God doing? He's working to transform you into the image of his Son, that's His work in your life and mine, absolutely across the board to make us like Christ. God's amazing grace that brought about conversion and new life continues in our transformation, no less so. Remember in the creation account, we bear the image of God, but in, as creatures, as creatures, we bear the image of God in creation. But what do you get in recreation? You bear the image of God, but now specifically it's the image of Christ As his child, not a creature, a child, not God just generically, Jesus specifically. That's where we're going. We're going to bear that family resemblance. Uh, Let me start qualifying, and I hope you have a study sheet uh, so this makes sense, so that when we get to the table of what God's grace has provided for us as his children today, we have an appetite for what God's provided. Uh, the first thing is this re- regarding an unhappy discovery that John Newton found out and every, I think, honest Christian discovers as well. Uh, John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, experienced God's amazing, transforming grace in his conversion, okay? So we celebrate that, we focus on that, it's a great thing. What did his life look like immediately after conversion? You remember he said he was a trader in slaves. He, he bought and sold Humans. We call this trafficking today, don't we? He was a trafficker, a human trafficker. You know what he did after conversion? He was a human trafficker. John Newton continued to serve as captain of a slave ship after his conversion. Now, he was benevolent in a way that most, most captains of slave ships were not. You know, the human loss on those ships was just atrocious. Even if you looked at it as a business deal strictly they would lose so many slaves on board those ships newton lost very few slaves on the ship but i just make the point he was doing after conversion what he was doing before and it wasn't just trafficking when you read his story you know you're waiting for the fire of conversion to take hold because he still sins in so many ways that he was before conversion crazy conversion child of god but, but he looks a lot like he used to. It's a slow process before God's grace in conversion lays hold of him and he starts that work of transformation that Newton sort of catches fire and becomes the person that we remember and look back on today. But that did not happen immediately after his conversion. He sort of languished sort of in those still balmy waters, if you will, where he wasn't going very far very fast. That was Newton's story. And it brings up this, what I think is a common universal experience of all of us, whenever we come to faith, if you come to faith as a kid and you can't remember you were so young, or if you come to faith as a teenager or an adult, you're happy with this knowledge of salvation. And hopefully there's that presence of the spirit that you're like i get it i know something i know someone i know i've been transferred out of darkness into light i know my sins are forgiven there's this thought but at some point for all of us there's this unhappy discovery that we're not what we would be that we're still a lot of what we were before conversion that sin clings to us like a disease like one of those rashes on your arm and you want to get rid of it and it just will not go away We find that sin is an issue. It's not a little one. It's troubling, it's shaming, and it's persistent. Kathy and I were gone for a couple of weeks this summer. When we came back, my lawn was overgrown with weeds. And do you know those weeds, they don't need any encouragement? Do you know they they come? And uh, I have to work hard to get rid of those weeds. And if I turn my back while I'm not looking, they grow. And they reproduce. And guys, that's what sin in our life is like. It's like a weed, and it's hardy, and it has a will to sin. And it doesn't just go away. It doesn't just go away. Romans 7.21 says it this way. So, so conversion's a great grace work of God, and then we discover something that's unhappy, it's unsettling, and it's this. Romans 7, Paul said, I find the principle that evil is present in me the one who wants to do good. I find the principle that evil remains in me, the one who wants to do good. In Galatians 5, he describes it this way. The desire of the flesh is against the spirit. We talked about this a little bit last week. The flesh, the the, the thought is it's my human body and it's the sinful nature I have from birth. So this is the nature that can't please God, doesn't seek God, can't do good as God defines good ultimately, right? That's what we have. And so Paul describes in Romans and in Galatians particularly, there's this internal conflict that Christians become aware of. God's grace did save us from our sins. We're forgiven. We're children of God, but we've got this unhappy partner that's still with us. So in Galatians 5, he says, The flesh is against the spirit, the spirit's against the flesh. They're opposed to each other so that you cannot do what you would. So there's this unhappy discovery that God's grace in our lives is not only opposed by external forces like the world and the devil. Opposition to God's transforming work in my life isn't merely external, it's internal that I am my worst enemy inside. Even if I close the doors and button up everything else, there's still this unholy alliance desire within myself that wants to sin because that's what its very nature is. We have a kind of internal civil war going on. So that's the unhappy discovery. Colossians 3 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, what you were born with, what you came with from procreation. Our unhappy discovery is that while on one hand we have a new life and new desires, we also have an old sinful life with its own desires, all opposed to God and His new work in us. Friends, and this is the thing, that revelation should help us appreciate and value and long for the means of grace God provides for our transformation now, when you read Romans 7, Paul's developing, he's talking about this situation of this internal conflict. He has this cry at the end when he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? That's what we want. That is that when we see that sin rise up, guys, it's, it's thoughts, right, that no one else knows it's words, it's actions, it's inaction, it's the failure to do, it's omission or commission, it's in all of those things, we should be driven to that point where we cry out to God too, wretched man that I am, Lord, who will deliver me? And that moves the whole story of redemption into chapter 8 in Romans, which is about the Spirit's presence. We'll talk about that in a little bit but that God has provided transforming grace and power for us so that we don't have to live in that sin. We find that unhappy discovery. I'm more than I want to be because sin is still with me, but God speaks to that in Romans 8. We'll look at that in just a little bit. There's an issue that also needs to be settled. So uh, think through this with me for just a minute. Let's say I'm living a life, Uh, like i did immoral doing my own thing and i get saved okay so i've heard the gospel i've believed in jesus i i can't deny i know who he is and i know what he's done for me but then i find that i have these old patterns like newton did in my life of sin and some of them frankly i was glad to continue in and others i didn't want to continue in but i seemed unable to get out of them what do I do? And then the question, depending on how far this goes and how bad it feels, I start asking myself, maybe you've done this or someone you know has done this, did I really get saved? Am I really a Christian? Because I'm, I'm still sinning. And I thought I would be saved and sort of those, the sins would be over, that, that they'd be gone, that they'd be history but nothing current. Nothing current, certainly nothing that I'd be ashamed of or that I wouldn't want to tell somebody else about was going on inside of me. Can we lose our salvation? So can that person whom God has breathed life into and recreated through new birth, can they lose their salvation? And here's the thing, here's another qualifier. If I fear that I can lose my salvation then sanctification becomes a legalistic framework in which i'm hoping i don't sin too much that i've crossed the line and now i'm not a christian anymore but friends lots of christians grow up with this fear and the thing about it is this uh, think of this if your child came to you and they said uh, in fact i used to have this conversation with the girls i'd say girls if you don't like your dad anymore are you not my daughter? No, they're still my daughter. I said, if you changed your name, would you quit being my daughter? No, because you're still my daughter. The point was this. They were something by birth. They can't be something else. And friends, in rebirth, we are something and someone else that can't be undone. But if we don't know that, if we don't know that, we try to measure up to a standard. And friends, this is legalism. And we want to be relieved of the burden that we can somehow keep our salvation by our efforts and by our efforts at holiness and by avoiding the bigger the little sins that for us are those troubling ones. Okay, so, so this is the thing. Uh, my children are my children. They're my children by birth. And I raise them, and I discipline them, and I train them. And they can never not be my child because it's origin. The Christian, and you have all this on your study sheet. I can't, I'm not going to linger on this. I simply want to make the point. Um, If you have a new birth, you have a new identity from a new source, you can't do anything about it. If you, grew, if you woke up on a morning and say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Lord, I'm ticked off. I don't like the way you're running the world or my life. You're no less God's child than you were before if you have Christ's life. There's no escape, so to speak. This church teaches what's called the eternal security of the believer. If it's pejoratively stated, it's once saved, all saved. That's usually a pejorative. It's that you mean you can do anything you want and still remain saved. And in a qualified sense, so I can offend as many as possible, I say yes, absolutely. But that's the nature of salvation. And if you don't get this, you will not grow in Christ-like transformation the way your father wants you to. You can't, because you're always looking over your shoulder. Am I a foster child? Or am I God's child? Am I here for a moment? Scripture does speak about the language of adoption, but it's also birth. So if you're unclear on that, read the Scriptures on your study sheet, and glad to talk to you about that later. I'll read only Romans 8 related to this. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And if you don't know you're saved forever, this is where you'll revert to. You go back to fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, present tense, children of God. We're God's children because there's been new birth. John 3 talks about that. Jesus told Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you can't be part of my kingdom. That's new spiritual birth. And that's why, by the way, we have that unhappy discovery you know, as a, as a sinner, I was pretty miserable in some ways, but I was pretty happy with some sins on the other because I was a sinner with a sinful nature. The believer is the one who can be unhappy in the sense that I now have a new nature, and that new nature is Christ's nature. It's God's nature, and it doesn't want to sin. First John says it can't sin because it's created in God's very likeness. The very fact that the Christian has this kind of internal conflict is only possible because there's been a new birth, because there's an old sinful nature and there's a new sinless nature. So we want to get this right. Unhappy discovery doesn't mean that the believer fears loss of eternal life, that God's amazing grace and conversion somehow is upended because I couldn't hold that weight or carry it home. It's like, no, no, no. God's still at work conforming us to the image of His Son. As you guys know, I'm going through a bunch of theology and a bunch of doctrine in a very short time, and we're not qualifying all the ways we could talk about this in one direction or another. But what I'm trying to say is the absolutes, the clarity, the big rocks, the black and white. Okay, so Christians are no longer sinners who can't please God. They're saints and children "...who sometimes sin." When you read the epistles, to whom are they addressed? To the saints. Saints means holy ones. Why are we holy? Because Christ is holy. Because God is holy. Because we have his very nature. We are not present tense sinners, but saints and God's children. And that's why 2 Peter 1.3 says, "...his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness." God has provided for you and me as His children everything we need to live life well, successfully on planet Earth in lieu of the future we share with Him. Life and godliness, transformation into Christ's image. But here's the thing, and this is my conviction. This is why I'm qualifying all of this before I move on, which I need to do. Um, we're tempted to diminish our appreciation for the grace of God in sanctification the way we might, Mike might, appraise an older city bus. If I was looking at an old city bus going down the road, you know what I'd say? It looks a little shabby. And the most common of people are riding it. I don't ride the bus. I don't ride the bus. But you know what? The bus will get me where I am to where I need to go. Even if common people that I think I'm better than are on that bus. Or even if I don't think it's that impressive looking, the bus will still get me where I need to go. God's grace gifts for our transformation to many of us, I think, look like an old city bus that we're simply not interested in. But guess what? The bus will get us where God wants us to go. God's gracious means for our transformation are considered too common by many of us to consider engaging in, at least with any kind of appreciation and regularity. Some of us, friends, mistakenly believe we're more mature in faith than we are. And the people around us usually know that. If we don't, our friends do. Our friends and family, they do. The problem is this. We we don't know the difference between our opinion and what God says is true. So we think our opinions are truth with a capital T. But it's because they haven't been refined by God's word. We don't know where we're out of line because God's truth hasn't corrected us, hasn't spoken to us. Many of us remain spiritual midgets, no insult to midgets, children who don't thrive and grow because we aren't living out of the grace God provides for our growth, because we aren't living there. We're not eating our Wheaties, so to speak. So my advice, my exhortation this morning is to choose to grow up and get on the bus, The three amazing grace provisions God makes for our transformation, His his great work in our life, are threefold. Primarily, God's Word, the Holy Spirit, and the fellowship of other Christians. Those are the primary means by which God is at work in our lives to transform us to the image of Christ. Now, I think we tend to minimize God's grace in transformation in comparison to the grace in salvation, I heard from a number of you last week because the message of our, our uh, translation from death to life uh, rang a bell. It was significant. And it's like I'm seeing and appreciating something in a way that's helpful. And I say, man, that's, that's great. But when it comes to appreciating God's grace in our transformation, it's not that abrupt. Think of it this way. If I woke up from a sleepwalk... And I found myself on the edge of a cliff, ready to fall headlong to my death. And the earth is crumbling beneath my feet, and I suddenly feel out of nowhere strong arms and hands grab hold of me and pull me back from the edge of the cliff. Man, I've got this singular moment of appreciation, not only right then, but afterwards. And I would say things like, I almost died and someone saved me or i might say i was lost but now i'm found or i was blind but now i see you get the picture it's singular it's dramatic because you realize i was headed to eternal separation from god and now i'm going to heaven where there's there's pleasures forevermore that's singular and it's dramatic when we contemplate it absolutely from death to life it's a big deal The trouble with appreciating God's grace related to sanctification is it's not like that. God's grace in our transformation is more like watching a tree grow. How dramatic is that? Guys, I have a lovely white pine in my backyard and I planted it maybe 20 years ago. It was, you know, I don't know, three or four feet tall it's 30 or 40 feet tall today the birds nest in it. it's a lovely lovely tree do you know why it looks that way one I planted it I put it there two I fertilized it and I watered it and I trimmed it you get the picture on any given day when I looked at that tree I couldn't see that it had grown but it was but you couldn't see so in a short period of time. It would take weeks or months or years to realize, man, that tree was this big, and now it's this big. It took time. Uh, Kathy and I had friends, uh, we haven't kept track of for quite a number of years, but they were missionaries, knew them here in Topeka. They left, they were overseas for three or four years. They came back. We sat down, we were chatting with them, and they said, you know, it's obvious who's been growing and who hasn't. What they had was they had years' worth of separation between them and these people that they knew before. They came back and they said, as we've interacted with these people, it's clear who's been growing and who hasn't. But the thought again is that growth, it takes place over time. So on any given day, we, we may not feel like God's grace for our transformation is that big a deal. But guys, this is the thing. You add one day to another, to another. To another. You know, you feed your kids every day, don't you? We feed our kids every day, and slowly they grow. And sometimes more more quickly. You hit adolescence, you know, and you suddenly sprout up and someone says, Wow, you know, in a month or two or three, I can see you've grown. But that's the exception, that's not the norm. So I think one of the challenges we have with appreciating God's grace is simply that it's not as dramatic as our conversion. But God's grace in His work of transformation is no less gracious. It's no less valuable than what He started. You know, we celebrate birthdays. Birth is a singular event. If that baby refused to grow, would that be pathetic? You know, if that young man or young lady, if they grow up physically, but they refuse to grow emotionally, intellectually, socially, we'd say, man, there's something wrong with you because you're meant to grow and you've got everything you need to grow so we would say let's grow up so i want to look at these i'm right on time i want to look at these three things and i know you're all surprised when i say the first one is uh, god's grace for transformation is read your bible it's your bible read your bible and friends i get it so you guys laugh I feel like you mock me occasionally about that phrase when read, read your Bible is the ref, expected refrain. Uh, but you know, that's shorthand. And it means we're all about God's Word and, and truth and being real and genuine about following Christ through the truth of His Word. That's really what it's about. It's shorthand. I get it if you laugh or smile. That's okay as long as we're doing it. Because what you'll see is, The Bible, which is, so each one of these things, we could spend weeks talking about the ridiculous nature of God's work to give us this Bible that we take for granted. Guys, angels long to look into the things God shows the church. Prophets in the Old Testament that we read, they wanted to know what we know because we've got our Bible. It's this wealth and this gift that I think we just tend to take for granted. One or two hours of exposure to God's Word once a week on Sunday morning can no more help you be spiritually healthy than one or two meals a week would keep you physically healthy. That God means for us to make a meal, if you will, in the regularity with which we come to Him in His Word. If we would participate in God's grace of transformation, we have to value The truth of his word let me give you a couple reasons why the first is this God's word changes the way we think guys we've had these discussions among the elders and one of my chief concerns frankly for our church and Christians generally is Christians are under more message assault today than ever in the history of the world And the voice of the church has shrunk, I'm convinced, in comparison to the number of other influences that people are subject to. So the church is one voice, but you've got schools, parachurch organizations, social media, you name it, people are bombarded with messaging all over the place. And my fear, and it's more than a fear, it's a reality, I know, because of the conversations I have, that the voice of God's Word in or out of the church, it's been been muted. It's been minimized. It doesn't have the impact generally that God means for it to have on us because it's being squashed by other things. And here's the thing. You know, you are always being messaged, aren't you? Always. And friends, your mind, what you believe, it's always conforming to something. It's always conforming to something. What's it being conformed to? So in Romans 12, when Paul starts the application of all the theology he's been giving through 11 chapters, the first verse says, consider yourself like a sacrifice on an altar. You belong to God holy. You're all his. But then the second verse is, don't be conformed to this world. Remember, God's great work in us is to transform us into the image of his Son, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How is your mind renewed? How do you stop the the compressive forces of the world around you from conforming your mind and your thoughts to what the world is selling instead of God? It has to be God's word is opposing the conforming influences of the world around you. If it's not, make no mistake, you're simply going along with the world. It can't be otherwise. Our mind is feeding on something. Ephesians 4 puts it this way, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds so that you can put off your old sinful self. So God's Word is meant to renew our thoughts so that we're thinking what God says is true. Think of this, you know, I don't know how many, maybe a couple billion people in the world are Christians, and when we say that, we mean that in name they are Christians. About a billion, I believe, are Roman Catholic. These are people who say, I am a Christian. Now, that may mean nothing more than I grew up in a Christian family. It may mean I'm in a country where Christianity is the majority. But listen to this from Jesus in John 8. This is conditional, and this is descriptive. Conditional and descriptive. Jesus said, if, if, if... If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So what's the flip side of that? If you don't abide, which simply means live, if you don't live in my word, you are not what? You're not my disciple. What does the disciple mean? Someone who follows someone else. And Jesus says, if you don't live in my word, you're not following me. You may call yourself Christian, but Christian is what you don't do if you don't live in God's Word. So it's only those who are living in God's Word that Jesus says qualify for the descriptive phrase of disciple, of a Christ follower, a follower. We're not following Jesus if we're not in His Word. It's an impossibility. This is a big one for me. John 17, 17 Jesus, last night with the guys, he's praying for them, and he's praying for those who believe in him through their testimony. That's us. Right on down through the ages, that's us. You remember what his prayer is? He says, Father, sanctify them. What does sanctify mean? That means make holy. Is Jesus holy? Jesus is holy. So, Father, sanctify them. Make them holy. Make them like me. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus' prayer to the Father was that you and I would be transformed, would become holy like Him, and God would do it through the truth. And friends, it's God's Word that is true. God's Word that is true. You know, Jesus didn't pray a prayer the Father didn't answer. Even, you know, at His crucifixion, He says, Lord, not my will but Yours be done, Father, right? Even when He says, Lord, I'd love not to be crucified tomorrow. And he says, but not my will, yours be done. We know Jesus is praying according to God's will. What does the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer look like? Guys, this is earth-shaking. It's 2,000 years ago, Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And do you know in the morning when you sit down and open your Bible, do you know God the Father is answering Jesus' prayer from 2,000 years ago? Is that mind-numbing? that God the Father is still answering that prayer today. Every time we give ourselves to the truth of Scripture, that prayer is being answered. And God is at work today through Jesus' prayer then to make us holy like Him when we simply open the pages of our Bible to meet with God and be exposed to truth. It's still going on today. If you're not reading God's Word, I hope you feel pressured to but not manipulated. (laughs) We never want to be coercive and I'm absolutely serious about that. Coercion is worthless, and manipulation is not worthy. It's disrespectful apart from absolutely anything else. But I hope you you get a longing for God's word. And if you don't know where to start, start with something that is on your mind. So if you say I'm struggling with a sin, what does scripture say about that sin and deliverance from that? Start there. Or if you have a question about some big philosophical or theological issue what does scripture say to that start where you already have interest and if you don't know where to start talk to anybody here we'll, we'll help you there's concordances all kinds of ways to do this but what you'll find is once you get into the habit of eating spiritually regularly you, you want to keep doing it so you can start a habit and it'll stay with you uh, the second grace gift for from god for our transformation is the gift of the spirit Guys, we take this for granted. Do you know if you grew up in uh, Donald Trump's home and you're surrounded by wealth, you'd sort of take wealth for granted, wouldn't you? Because it's all around. It's all you know. Guys, for Christians, all we know is the age of the Spirit, life under the new covenant. This is a thing. This was a new thing. From the day of Pentecost forward, this was a new thing. And you know that all the saints of the Old Testament whose conversion was always brought about by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, they didn't have what you have. You know, the Spirit of God, read the life of Saul, the Spirit of God would come upon him to do things and then leave. But the new covenant that we live under that Jesus instituted that came into powerful presence in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, Jesus said, hey, he's been with you, the Holy Spirit, But now he will be in you. That was new. And so today, guys, we're wealthy and we take wealth for granted, but we shouldn't. We live in the age of the Spirit. And so when we're born again by the power of the Spirit, just like Old Testament saints, unlike them, the Holy Spirit comes and makes us his temple. We've talked about this before. Individually and corporately, Scripture says, without any argument, we are the temple of the living God. That's new. And it's a wealth, I think, we tend to take for granted. This wasn't true before Pentecost. The Spirit leads us. Romans 8:14. all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In salvation, the Holy Spirit seals us. This is important just related to the security of the believer. Ephesians 1 says the Holy Spirit of God seals us. It seals us. You know, back in those days, everything had a seal. If I wrote you a letter, it's got a wax seal. It's got my stamp on it. So when you get it, you know that's from Mike. Or if uh, King Zedekiah had wine down in his cellar, you know what it had on it? It had Zedekiah's stamp. They're called boule. They still find these things today. It had his stamp. It belongs to the king. Well, Ephesians 1 says, when you were born again, the Holy Spirit stamped you and said, you're God's, you're mine. And in fact, in Ephesians 4, it says, you were sealed for the day of redemption That you've been, the Holy Spirit's presence on you is like a stamp. It's marked you out for God. You're God's because the Spirit has made it so. The Spirit keeps it so. The Spirit leads us. uh, Acts 16, there's great stories of Paul and and his missionary journeys there. Read that. Uh, The Spirit enables us to walk free from sin, Romans 8. You know, you get this description of the challenging conflict within in Romans 7. But in Romans 8, we're told that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has has lifted us above the law of sin and death. That the Spirit's presence in us is the power not to sin. Galatians 5 tells us to do this. It says, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Some things the Holy Spirit does, um, on our end, we're passive. The Spirit's doing something, we're not actively or consciously part of it. But other things we're told to cooperate. And the Spirit's presence with us is this grace gift. And in Galatians, he says, Think of it as a walk with someone. So I put my hand in my dad's hand and I walk down the street. I'm keeping in step with the Spirit. I'm leading or I'm going where the Spirit is leading, I'm being led by the Spirit. And, guys, one of the things Christians should be doing is consciously saying, Lord, help me be sensitive to what you're saying, how you're leading, what you're doing. What you'll find is the Spirit is more willing to lead and guide than you've been aware. Than you've been aware. Uh, the Spirit prays for us. This is passive, Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray, but the Spirit within us is praying with groanings too deep for words. And God the Father knows what the will of the Spirit is in us. He's praying according to God's will. We're sleeping, and the Spirit is praying for us. The Spirit is praying for us. The Spirit fills us, Acts four thirty one. You know, there's lots of teachings on the, the uh, person of the Holy Spirit and what His work looks like. We can say clearly, so in conversion, the Spirit brings about our conversion, seals us, we're gods. We have the Spirit. Guys, Romans 8 says if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian, unambiguously. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not born again, period. Every Christian has the Spirit. But guys, guess what else it says? It says you can be filled with the Spirit. That also implies that you can be running on empty or low as far as the influence and the power of the Spirit also. So it's a command in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. See, that's active on our part. So if I'm in God's Word and I'm submitting my will to the Spirit, the Spirit will lead me. And I'll keep in step with the Spirit, and the Spirit can fill us. And we're aware this is is what God's up to. I'm spiritually tuned to what God wants me to be tuned to the Holy Spirit. Guys, we can diminish the Spirit's grace role. Scripture says in Ephesians 4: Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you've been sealed for the day of redemption. You can grieve the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5 says: Don't quench the Spirit. So through sin, through omission and commission, we can act against the Spirit's leading. And that's a relationship. And and guess what? The Spirit usually makes us feel uncomfortable and unholy and not very good because we're, we're rupturing not the relationship per se, but the blessing and the experience of that relationship. So, God's grace in our transformation is brought about by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And the last one is the fellowship of the saints. I think we take this one for granted more than the other two. The fellowship of the saints. That God's grace gift to you and to me uh, are the other Christians that you're meeting with Sunday morning. Or the ones you're avoiding Monday afternoon. Guys, you cannot grow as a Christian the way God calls you to if you're not plugged in to the fellowship of the church. Now, that's not my opinion. I've got more text, but for time's sake, I'll just go to Ephesians 4. Your study sheet has some more. Listen to this. Ephesians 4, again, Paul's done the doctrine in the first three chapters. He starts the theology in chapter 4. He gives seven points of unity. This is true of all Christians. We've got one one Father, one Spirit, one Lord, one baptism, there's one. But then he says, besides the one, there's diversity. He says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So Jesus gave gifts to the church. Now in Ephesians 4, the gifts are, he he, uh, specifically mentions leadership gifts. So it's uh, apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, and teachers, okay? So this is a short list, but listen to what he says they're given for. Those gifts are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The leadership gifts are meant to to enable everyone to know what God calls them to do and to serve. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So the gifts in the body of Christ, so not only the equipping gifts, but every other gift they're meant to inform and and sort of push forward in use, they're meant to bring us to maturity, and the last phrase, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, if God's great work in you is conformity to the image of Christ, Paul says here that it's through the ministry of the body of Christ that you achieve the stature of the fullness of Christ, which is to say you can't do it if you're not fellowshipping regularly in the body of Christ. It can't happen. It doesn't happen. It won't happen. And this is not only true, by the way. You you probably know some Christians. You love them, and they're lovely people, and they encourage you. And we're good with that, right? Right? I'm good with that. i take more of that. But here's the thing, too. Do you know those Christians that aggravate you that are really Christians? Do you know God means to use them in your life to help you conform to the image of Christ? Have you found this out? Maybe you say to yourself, Lord, I can't forgive them. Or you say, Lord, I can't love them. Well, that's the point. And then, then that's the reminder, uh, Mike, I loved you when you were unlovable. Yeah, you, you did, still do. And so Christ in me, that, that divine Christ life that's in us, I'm now reminded, well, God loved me when I was unlovable, still does. And Christ in me can love, and Christ in me can forgive. You see what I mean? Even the, the folks that trouble us, vex us, harm us, harm us. They can actually be used by God and providentially are used by God because we stay in that. Instead of running away, sometimes we're called to embrace the pain and the challenge because that's how God is at work through them. Not necessarily that's what they intend, but that's how God is at work in us to transform us into Christlike image. So it's not just all the positive interactions we assume and we want in the church family. Sometimes it's the negative ones as well. God's at work in all of those things, to transform us into Christ's image. Uh, Guys, when I was a new Christian, I knew I was saved. Knew I was saved. I understood the gospel. I started reading my Bible. And some of it made sense. And I loved it. I was memorizing it. I've told you I was quoting scripture while I was getting high with my friends, partying hard, because I was so jazzed about what I was reading. But what happened was I didn't plug in anywhere. And that habit didn't stay. And it was two or three years later that I was telling the guy, you know, I prayed to accept Christ two or three years ago, whatever it was. And I said, you know, I look at my life, it's kind of, kind of the same as it was before. Well, he encouraged me, you won't believe this, but he encouraged me to read my Bible, which I started doing <laughs> every day. And then guess what? I got plugged into a church. And as I was reading, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes that I needed to be baptized when I was reading through Acts. Oh, this is the work of the Spirit. I haven't been baptized. You get the picture. Once that happened my spiritual growth just took off well then you couldn't keep me from scripture and i I wanted to be in the church and i was aware the holy spirit's convicting me showing me things but it's because the grace gifts were in operation god's word the whole the knowledge of the holy spirit wanting to be in step with the spirit with other believers well it transformed my experience of conversion it's never the same still isn't today so those are the grace gifts God means for us to value. And guys, if we don't value them, we won't take advantage of them. But we're, they're there for us. The table is set. And if we come hungry, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness because God says he'll fill them. And that's what we want for ourselves. So with that, if you would stand, and we'll close by reading. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Hopefully this is familiar to you. It's a verse we'd closed on uh, for a few months. Uh, Let's read this together and the worship team will lead us in worship. The grace of the Lord Jesus...